it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a very special episode. Today, we have Jeff Santoro and Jason Hall from The Smattering. They're joining us here to talk to us about investing and all kinds of fun stuff. They also used to work for The Motley Fool. And so these guys are very smart and they know their stuff. And if you do not already listen to their show, you absolutely need to. You will learn a lot. So as we're going to discover here in a minute. So Jason... Jeff, thank you very much for showing, joining us today, showing up. We appreciate that. That's always a bonus. Could you guys uh, maybe give everybody who aren't familiar with you, maybe a quickie background on who you are, where you came from, and what you want to be when you grow up? Dave, I'll first of all, send me your Venmo so I can pay you for that great recommendation of our podcast. <laughs> I'm Jason Hall, and I have a strange, interesting background that led me to this. I was an absolute idiot with money. For most of my my 20s, my early adult life, really my teens on through my 20s, there are stories I could tell that it's still I'm trying to figure out why my wife stayed with me and married me after all of the trials and tribulations. But along the way, I grew up. And at some point, I'm in my mid to late 20s. It's 2007. Things are good. And then things are horrible. I was lucky to be in Southern California at the time, making a really good income, watching the world fall apart realized I have no retirement savings. I It's time to grow up. And I seized the opportunity. You mentioned The Fool. I found The Motley Fool about this time, ended up joining one of the newsletters and fell in love with it. And within a couple of years, really got super passionate about doing the research and writing and was really involved on The Motley Fool's message boards for a number of years, somebody internally at the Fool came to me and said, you know, we'll pay you for this stuff. <laughs> really? Okay. All right. So started doing a little bit of freelance writing and just completely fell in love with that. And it's one of those things where I'm sure you can both relate. Is there something really powerful to finding meaningful work that 
gives you purpose. And the job that I was in in outside sales, making a ton of money, great colleagues, it was fine. It did not give me fulfillment like doing the work that I was doing for the fool just on a freelance basis. I had an opportunity to turn that into full-time work. And I mean, that's been 11, 12 years ago. Still do a good bit of contracting work for the fool in addition to the podcast that Jeff and I have a YouTube video, YouTube channel as well. We have a couple of other folks that guest and come on with us for our YouTube videos. And here we are. That brings us to today. Awesome. I have a slightly different background and story than Jason. I was not an idiot for my 20s with my money. I was very responsible. If you look at the funds that he chose in his 403B, you may beg to differ. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a little bit of a a different story. I work full time in education. I was a a music teacher for 12 years and now I am a supervisor of a finer performing arts program in a school district in New Jersey. And I do all of the investing and podcast and writing stuff with The Motley Fool uh, as a side hustle. I found The Motley Fool during the pandemic. I was, I've been an investor my whole life, but only in index funds in my retirement accounts. And I had this strange trip of just a random conversation with a colleague. I opened a brokerage account for the first time ever, bought some stocks with literally like $50. I was just playing around and learning, found The Motley Fool, fast forward. A year later, I was doing work for them as a contractor, similar to Jason. I was uh, working on their message boards, doing some internal work. Came out at the end of 2021 as a writer on the free side. And then last summer, 22, Jason and I started the Smattering podcast, which basically came out of our fake internet friendship by texting and DMing on Twitter. I reached out and said, hey, we should start a podcast. And we did. And that's what we've been doing together ever since. So it's a full-time gig for Jason. It's a part-time gig for me. But I think I would echo what he said about just really falling in love with the whole process of learning about it, diving into businesses, reading 10Ks and 10Qs and press releases and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's a quick story for me and how I got here. That's awesome. So all right, you guys both have kind of diverse backgrounds. So what about the stock market, I guess, attracted you? Was it the the money or was it the kind of the endless fascination with how companies work and kind of the whole mechanism? Oh, it's definitely the money. No doubt about it. 100% the money. That's the only reason I'm here. When are we getting paid? I'm kidding. I was really drawn to the idea of, of building sustainable wealth over the long term, you know, and it's, I guess I was lucky because before I really jumped to it into it in like 2007, 2008 at that time. In the early 2000s, I worked with some simple who were like day trading penny stocks and all that kind of stuff. And I remember, I don't remember which cable company it was, but there was a cable company that had gone bankrupt and the stock was paid trading for 20, 25 cents a share, something like that. And one of the guys I worked with was convinced, convinced they're going to come out of bankruptcy and it's going to be worth so much money. And I remember thinking, and I didn't know anything about stocks back then, but I knew a little bit about business. I'm like, they went bankrupt. That means that somebody else is going to own it after this. And he was reading a penny stock newsletter, right? That's He was a bag holder for somebody. So, so luckily, I was just kind of predisposed to... Like the business focused, like the idea you're buying businesses, you, you get to participate in amazing power of capitalism to, you know, innovate and create wealth and change people's lives and gradually improve everything for everybody. It's kind of like the inverse of like, there's this story that Morgan Housel wrote years ago. I don't even have to tell you guys who Morgan Housel is. Anybody that's listening should know who he is. It's just this one little quip from a story that he wrote that talked about how there are people Driving home today from 
uh, an outpatient procedure complaining to somebody about how long it took that took care of something that would have killed their grandparents, right? It's like we get to participate in like this amazing change of life that we don't even see, right? We don't even see it happen and our lives get so much better. And I think that is so amazingly powerful that you can do that with just this small amount of money. And again, I was growing up and I realized, hey, I need to create wealth. I fell in love with this way to do it. And then the idea of being able to own these transformative businesses was just so compelling to me. It was just so incredibly compelling. Yeah. I'm going to be perfectly honest. The reason I got in, excited about the stock market with inv- individual stocks specifically was entirely for the money. I got into it for the absolute wrong reason. That conversation I referenced earlier that kind of got me interested was with a colleague who basically not day traded, but was like basically a swing trader. And he was, you know, showing me, Oh, I bought this stock five years ago and it's up this much. And I like the idea that you could own a stock and it could go up hundreds of percent, like, blew my mind because my conception of investing was my lame index fund that might go up, you know, a few percentage points over the course of the year, right? I had no conception that of what you could do. What's interesting is I quickly sort of fell in love with the other side of it, the long-term buy and hold, build wealth over time. It was like I got in for all the wrong reasons and then I had this like aha moment. And I've always been the kind of person that was interested in personal finance. Like I'm the nerd who balanced their checkbook when they were like 16, like to the penny. Like I can tell you where I've spent every dollar going back to probably the early or mid nineties. I was lucky enough to marry somebody that does that. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I had a very different twenties than you did, Jason. But so like the idea of keeping track of businesses and, and the money and looking at financial statements like that clicked with me very naturally just because it was a, a uh, interest I didn't know I had. It made sense in hindsight. But yeah, if I'm being honest, it was the idea that something could go up multiple hundreds of a percent that you own just kind of blew my mind. So that's actually what sucked me in. And then just if you had told me two weeks prior to that conversation where I'd be now, three or four years later, I never believed it. So it's just, it's just I was right place, right time, right circumstances. Those are awesome stories. So do you guys have any do you remember what the first companies or company that you bought uh, for Andrew and I it was both Microsoft. So do you guys remember the first one that you stepped off the ledge to buy? I have to ask you before we answer though, when did you buy Microsoft? Because that can be a very, very different <laughs> result. In well, even despite the gray hair, I'm, I'm late to the game too. So mine was 2014. Holy shit. You still did incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I only bought one share, so don't get too excited. (laughs) I bought more since, but it was, it was one whole share. So, you know, Andrew, what about you? I bought it in 2012 because I like to play Xbox. I knew they were coming out with an Xbox next month. And that was my rationale. I I did that about the same time, to be honest. I really did. did. That's funny. My reason for buying it was because I used Word and Excel at work. So I was working in the banking industry and I used those two products a lot. And so it just was like, okay, makes sense. We did a whole episode recently about is being a lazy investor better? And the thesis I brought to that conversation was basically the reason everyone here bought Microsoft, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you just bought the things that you know everyone uses that are really big brands that everyone, you know, like that you just can't live without. Could you do fine over time? It was a thought exercise. I'm not saying you should just go rush out and buy everything you're familiar with, with no research. But this along the lines of what you guys were saying, my first stock was given to me because when I opened a brokerage account in February of 2020, it was a Robinhood account. So I was given GoPro. That was my gift for opening the account. Um, at the time... I, like I said, I literally started with $50 and they did not have fractional 
share trading. Mm-hmm. So I was buying essentially penny stocks. I was buying random biotechs that were a dollar fifty, three dollars, you know, just because I had fifty bucks, I couldn't buy a share of, of, a, of Amazon. Microsoft or Amazon or anything yeah. like that. But I will say one of the earliest stocks I bought, I don't know if it was my first one that like I felt like I was it was really like my decision. It was once I switched to a different brokerage and had fractional shares. I bought Apple probably right at the beginning. And it's almost for the exact reason you guys all bought Microsoft. I use all Apple products, iPhones are everywhere. It was just like buy what you know can't go wrong, that kind of a thing. I didn't know anything at that point. I was lucky that I was buying a lot of stocks at during the beginning of the pandemic. That happened to coincide with me getting into interested in it. So <laughs> I was looking back today. I bought a lot of stuff on like March 26th, 2020. <laughs> like I didn't perfect. I was just excited and buying stuff. Now again, you said this earlier, Dave, like I bought like four dollars of this and three dollars mm-hmm. of that and five dollars of that. So I wasn't making any life changing decisions there. But mm-hmm. It was good timing on that part. The first stock that I ever bought was, there's a trivia question that it's the answer to. And this stock was from the time of its IPO for, I believe, the next 40 years through like its peak stock price was the best performing stock in the US stock market over that period of time. I guess it was like 40 years. I bought it through the employee stock purchase plan. And then I left the company and sold those shares. And But I was awarded along the way, This this is the hint that'll may give you the answer to the question. They founded another business and they spun that business off and spun it off to existing shareholders. And the business they spun off was CarMax. Who founded CarMax and spun it off? I'm, I have no I idea. Mean, my first I've never guess heard you was tell the story. GE, but... Not GE. You think so. They GM? spun everything else off, right? GM? Oh, no. It, it's an obvious one. It, it makes perfect sense. Circuit City. Who else would start a car dealership? <laughs> Circuit City. Yeah. Circuit City. Oh my gosh. Of course, Circuit City went full round trip back to zero, right? Bankruptcy, liquidation, mm-hmm. the whole thing. But they founded CarMax. And luckily, I left the company, you know, the early 2000s, actually made a little money with the Circuit City stock. But the CarMax stock, for some reason, I still don't know why, but I had them send me the actual stock certificates and I stuck them in a safe and I kind of forgot about them. And then we moved out to LA and the story I told at the beginning about like, getting into investing some somewhere along the way, we're going through all of our stuff. And I'm like, wow, this is like $3,000 worth of stock. This is amazing. Here's the thing. If 25 year old me had found that, I would have had a great weekend. I tell you, it would have been a great weekend. <laughs> but luckily this was like 28 year old me. And I'm like, you know what? I need to figure out how to get these in a brokerage account and sell it because I had joined Stock Advisor, the Motley Fool service. And I was really ready to start taking that jump. And this was going to be like some of the seed money for me to really start taking that personal investing journey. So, yeah. Oh, that's quite a journey. Are you guys familiar with the coffee can concept that Christopher Mayer talked about in this book? Taking the spare change? Basically, similar idea of taking the stock certificates and putting them in a coffee can and then not touching them for decades. Brilliant. And how there's been some investors who have greatly outperformed. I think he used one example was like, it was a husband and a wife. The wife just took certificates and just stuck them in a coffee can. And the husband was like working with a financial advisor, trading in and out, trading in and out. And she just ended up her money was worth way more because you get companies like Berkshire or something and you know the rest is history. Well, it's like the apocryphal supposed research about you know investors that lose their passwords or that die outperform everybody. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing, right? Because you remove like us from the equation <laughs> and you do really well. Right? It's funny. Yeah. 
<laughs> you get rid of your uh, propensity to do stupid things and trading fees and taxes and those three things right there. Yeah. And you're, you're off to the, a good start. Do you have a long-term mindset searching for safe compounders? So am I. And I'm investing my entire life savings with the picks from valuespotlight.com. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. So what about that do you guys feel like you personally struggle with? Are there situations where you feel like you know you should hold something, but you end up talking yourself into selling it? I would say like one out of every 10 of our podcast episodes are financial therapy for me, where I I come to the table with some like existential investing crisis and we talk through it, which I think is sort of the vibe. I've got about half of my thesis written from Jeff for my master's in psychology. (laughs) (laughs) I'll answer your question, Andrew, at least one way. What I find is when I am busier in life, you know, again, I have a full-time job that is not in investing. So it's easy for me to go the whole trading day and never even like look at the market because I'm just, I'm at work. So I notice that when I am very busy at work for weeks at a time, if it's just a busy part of the year for me, I don't have the urge to trade or buy and sell things as much as if I have a week off. 
or I'm home sick one day or my kid is sick and I'm home with him or something like that. So for me that I noticed that early on and I've sort of put some friction in place. I have like little rules I kind of make myself adhere to when I'm feeling itchy, like, oh, I got to, you know, I got to buy something. Like I'll give you an example. If I know I'm going to be home for a week, I try not to, I tell myself don't buy anything or sell anything this week because I know that'll be driven by having the time to look and think and update some spreadsheet I'm keeping on a company and I get all excited and I want to do something. It's just the urge to be active. And I've noticed also that if sometimes two or three weeks go by and I don't check in, I don't look at what's going on. And if it's a good couple weeks in the market, I'm like, oh, this is a good reminder that I should just let time do its thing. (laughs) And so for me, it's a lot of just keeping myself away from it when I have the downtime because my interest in it which I think we all kind of can relate to, like my desire to read a 10K or read a 10Q will then get me excited to go buy some more of it or get me depressed and want me to sell some more of it. So I have to sort of put some friction in place so I don't do that too much. Two things that we talk about a lot on our podcast is building a toolbox as an investor. And like one of the tools that is so valuable, Jeff mentioned it, is like creating friction. You know, as much as like, the Robinhood movement is probably going to be a massive net positive for individual investors because trading fees have basically gone away. And like even the selling the deal flow, like we pay for that still, right? It gets built into the prices we pay. It's still a lot less than five or $10 a trade. Mm-hmm. And then add fractional investing on top of that. All of those things combined, like the net positive is there. Just it's so easy, right? There's no consequences to trading anymore, right? And it used to be, it was like 10 or $20 to buy and sell, right? And that's, you know, that's a good friction to keep people from doing dumb stuff. And now all of that's gone. So building friction in, like, because this is, Andrew, to answer your question for me, this is like, this is the biggest challenge that I've dealt with as an individual investor is managing my need to feel like I need to do something, right? Like I need to be, and you know who's doing something? The people that are running the companies I own, let them do it, right? That's the mm-hmm. thing. But still, it's, you know, when you're a person of action, you want to take action. So a couple of things that I've done, like I've got, I've only recently put the Fidelity Brokerage app back on my phone and I did it because um, I'm a contractor, I'm self-employed. The only way to make contributions to my solo 401k is through the app or to drive to Fidelity. I'm not driving to Fidelity, I have to do it through the app. So like I have the app to do that. I don't trade on the app. I won't. I trade at my computer, build in friction. I have a little for me, as close to rules as it gets, like, like I have to wait at least like two market days after I arrive at a decision before I can act on that decision, whether it's buying or selling. Sometimes I break that rule. You know, it's more framework than rule because like we say, frameworks help you think. Rules tell you what to do. If you're an investor and you only do things based on rules, then you're ignoring what's happening, right? So I think that's dangerous. So I don't know how probably answers your question with a lot more words than you needed. I bet if we got a scientist in here, he would say there's some science to sleeping on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's absolutely no doubt about that. No doubt. I mean, yeah, I think it, it's not just an investing thing. I think it's kind of a, a life thing too. Like I was thinking about this the other day. There are very few big life decisions that you make with no sort of waiting period. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I was th- the analogy I was thinking of the other day was like buying a car. Jason and I were talking about this. Like I will sometimes rush into spending, you know, buying a stock maybe even a little bit quicker than I should. Now granted, I'm not spending 
the amount of money a car costs on this, but I'll make that decision sort of quickly or with less research than I will when I'm buying like new tires for my car. You know, so I try to remind myself that, you know, the diligence I put into the new washer and dryer I need, I should probably put that diligence into, you know, an investment I'm going to make. So that's a, a thing that's kind of helped me too. Like if, if I'm going to spend more time deciding, you know, which cheap socks I'm going to buy on Amazon, I should probably put that much thought into a big investing decision. So true. I have friends that spend more time analyzing on Amazon whether they should buy this hat or this hat for a Christmas present than they do whether they should invest in this company or that company. Yeah, so true. It's too It's too easy, right? Mm-hmm. So it's too easy. It really is. I love the idea of friction. Uh, one of our partners talks about speed bumps and he took the trading apps off his phones. You know, the only way he can buy is to sit down on his computer. He has to turn it on. It just creates some friction. But I love that idea of, of waiting two days before you make a big decision. I think that's beautiful. I'm going to actually incorporate that. So thank you. You're welcome. Uh, full disclosure, Jeff and I, a recent episode we did, we were talking about some changes that Jeff's looking to make into his process. And we had a question from a listener asking when we a new stock comes on a radar, how long do we take before we take action? And I disclosed that I recently went from uh, zero to a full position in three hours. So I, I don't always follow my own rule. <laughs> Brainworks, not rules. Brainworks, right. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you'd maybe done some work on it before you went from zero to three. No. Not, not no. a bit. Not a no, single not bit. A bit. Okay. Not a single bit. It was borrowed conviction from someone. Somebody, somebody else trust. that I have deep trust in. Okay. Had done the work. Fair so. enough. Fair enough. All right. I'm so, not borrowing their conviction. I bought it. Trust me. Right. I'll show you my broken. <laughs> you paid full sticker price too, didn't you? Full price. You paid yeah. for that conviction. No, I All think right. it's a discount actually. I think it's a pretty good discounted price. <laughs> yeah. Time will tell, right? Time yes. will tell. That's right. Time will tell. So what would you consider at this point your, I guess, biggest investing mistake? Because we've all made mistakes. I'm an Intuit and PayPal bag holder here. So we've all made mistakes. Not Intuit, I'm Intel. Intel. Yeah. 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 I've got the scars. I had the tattoo, the Intel tattoo removed. So (laughs) I, I can relate to that one. There was one that I made that really sticks with me because it's a good lesson in Sometimes things come out of nowhere and you just can't fully see them. And this is where, you know, diversification is a hedge against ignorance. I don't know if it was Buffett or Munger that said it, but it was, it was a little bit kind of like, know what you're buying, like kid, grow up. And, but I think it's actually, if you just distill it down, it's actually, I think for most people, you should use it. And it's a company that manufactured, I can't remember the name now. It's been the better part of a decade ago that this happened, but it was a company that made sapphire for screens like, and they made the equipment that made the sapphire that's for like computer screens and phone screens and you know that kind of stuff. super durable lightweight material all that kind of stuff so anyway they signed this big deal with apple and at this point like the majority of their business was making the equipment and there was it was also used for the solar panel industry too they used it for glass for solar panel so there's all these applications for the different products that they were making but sapphire was like that was going to be the big one and they were really getting good traction. Then they signed this deal with Apple. And this was when Apple was building the plant in Arizona, New Mexico. I can't remember exactly, but somewhere else. They're building this plant in the U.S. It was like a big deal. So they said, we need you guys to make the Sapphire. Use your machines. You guys make the Sapphire too. You can do it in our factory. You can set up right there. Long story short, within six months, the company had filed for bankruptcy. They didn't have debt. They weren't heavily leveraged, except for to this deal 
this long-term contract with Apple where how much of it was the company, how much of it was Apple standards. The truth is probably a little bit of both. Apple basically kept refusing like on quality assurance, the quality of the Sapphire that they were producing and management got to points like we're so like this deal is so ironclad. The only way we're going to get out of it's bankrupt the company. They filed for bankruptcy. The company reemerged. Share it was a ninety nine percent loss. I was incredibly, incredibly bullish on this company, but luckily I was still young enough that you know even with it being a relatively large position size, it wasn't meaningful enough amount of money to like cause permanent economic damage. But I'm really glad that it wasn't ten percent of my portfolio. You know, so that's one that really sticks with me. I'll have to look up the name. I can never remember the name of the company. It's hard for me to pick just one. <laughs> well, so that's a ruffles bag full of. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I think it's hard for me for two reasons, right? So one is that as someone who truly believes like you need more than even four years to know if you were really wrong about something. And I've only been buying individual stocks for just short of four years at this point. So there's a ton of stuff I've sold that didn't go well and things I really had conviction in that I shouldn't have. A lot of that was just ignorance. You know, when you start in, the fall of 2020, you know, and then 2021 is just this rocket ship of a market. So I would say like generally my mistake has been in the, over the course of my short stock investing life is just buying regardless of price. I bought some high flying, you know, the ones you used to see on Twitter with the rocket ships. I bought a lot of that stuff in 2020, 2021, you know, I bought things for 30 times sales, 40 times sales. I mean, just ridiculous multiples because I didn't know any better. I still own some of those. I've bought at better valuations for some of those companies that were still good companies. They just got totally overbid. But I think like my general mistake has just been not paying enough attention to valuation. I guess if I was going to pick one stock that I ended up selling because I figured out I was completely wrong about it was I was very enamored with Stitch Fix at one point. And the lesson I learned there was the anecdotal evidence thing where I knew a lot of people who used it. My wife used it. A lot of my friends did. They said great things about it. I had gotten a couple things from it. And as someone who hates to shop for clothes, I was like, wait, I can get this stranger or this bot to like pick an outfit out for me. Like that sounds amazing. And I just bought into like the anecdotal evidence hype and just, I didn't know, I didn't look at the business close enough. I didn't know enough at that point. Luckily, same as Jason, like it wasn't like a huge amount of money or anything. But as I learned more, I realized, oh, this is not, you know, I can't buy stocks entirely on the fact that my friends use them. You know, like that's not enough of a thesis. That can be a starting point. (laughs) So I, that's just one example. There were a lot of things that fit into that kind of category. Like Blue Apron is another one, kind of the same boat. Like we get the food boxes and we cook with them. And I was like, this is amazing. And I bought it and it didn't go well. So I think kind of bucket my bad decisions into paying too much and or just, you know, rushing into things that I was excited about because I knew them or used them without really understanding what the business does, how it makes money, what the balance sheet looks like, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. The name of that company, GT Advanced Technologies, by the way, this was, it was 2014, they went bankrupt, but kind of bringing it full circle to a really good company on Semiconductor, ended up acquiring their last assets back in 2021. So, okay. Yeah. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. 
pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. If you're listening to Investing for Beginners, then you probably care about money and learning how to make a good relationship with your finances. Everyone's Talking Money is hosted by money wellness expert and certified financial planner, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money. Hear about the money topics you need to know, such as ways to train your brain to reach money goals, why you should ditch your budget and start tracking your cash, and everything you need to know about paying off student loans. Simple steps to start investing as a side hustle, ways to invest in rental real estate, how to overcome money trauma, and so much more. With over 900 episodes, there's a show for any and every money question you have. I'm a big fan of Shauna's as well. She has a relatable style and soothing voice that takes some of the stress surrounding money. Shauna really speaks to the listener and never ends in an episode without actionable tips. I recently listened to the episode, Stop Stressing Over Your Money, a simple budgeting solution, where she talks about her simple, easy one, two, three system for budgeting. It helped me a lot. Are you ready to learn everything about money that no one has taught you? Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. We talked about mistakes. Maybe we could talk now and switch gears and talk about how do you pick companies? How do you decide this is the one? How do you go from zero to three hours or hopefully longer before you buy a company? What does that look like for you? And Jeff, I hope this doesn't bring back bad memories for you or any sort of existential crisis. My process is simple. I find a company I like. I ask Jason what he thinks about it. And if he doesn't like it, I buy it immediately. Yes. That is my entire hair process. Yes. Uh, it's probably a smart approach, if I'm being honest. <laughs> so I can go through my process really quickly, and then I'll let Jason talk too much about his. So I like to keep spreadsheets. I, I'm a visual learner, so it really helps me to see over a several-year period like what revenue is done, what does gross margin look like, what is the you know bottom line, free cash flow, all those things. So the, typically, the first thing I'll do is, if there's a company I'm interested in, for whatever reason, however it comes on my radar, I'll quickly build a spreadsheet just to see. And you know, the spreadsheet will make little charts for me. And I just want to see trends. I fully realize that past results are not indications of future performance, but it gives me an idea of where the company has been, if it ever has been profitable, if it ever has, you know, had free cash, like all those kinds of things. That's one of the first things I'll do. I always go to a 10K even if it's almost a year old at that point, because the if anyone has never read a 10K, the business section where it describes what the business does is more fleshed out in a 10K versus the 10Qs. You usually get like a truncated version in the quarterly reports. I like to read those. I like to see the way that they explain their business in that document. Sometimes I'll also just go to the website if it's a you know, a product that you can, because I like to also see kind of how they pitch it to the world who aren't investors, kind of get both sides of that. And then, Beyond that, I like to read the SEC filings. I like to read the earnings calls. And then I'm lucky, you know, kind of like probably all, all you guys too. There, I have other people who I'm friendly with who I can bounce ideas off of. So I, all kidding aside, I will bring an idea I have to Jason and see what he thinks about it, see if I'm missing anything. I'm still new with this. So there's aspects that I, I know I have blind spots in my process. And I think that's something that everyone should be aware of for themselves. Like, you know, even if you know a little bit about everything, like everyone probably has some aspect of evaluating a business that is not their strongest. 
So I'll use other people to help me. Like, what am I missing on the balance sheet? Is there anything with the debt I'm not seeing? You know, I, I ask a lot of people for their thoughts on valuation because that's something that, again, I'm still kind of trying to learn about. But that's kind of my process. I, I also, it's worth saying, I'm a starter position kind of guy, right? So I will kind of quickly buy a company, but not a lot, you know, very little amount of money because once it's in my portfolio and on my like, you know, master spreadsheet of all the stocks I own, I will keep track of it. I will check on it quarterly. I will update my spreadsheets. I will read the 10Q, the 10K. I'll, I'll read the press release, all that stuff. If it's not on, if I don't, not in my portfolio, I won't. I know I won't. It's been four years. I don't. I know I don't. So, and then I kind of learn over time. There's a lot of companies where I bought a couple hundred dollars worth and then a year goes by of me learning about it before I like, okay, now I'm going to take a bigger bite of the apple and, and put like real money into this company. So that's kind of what I do. I just, do a little bit of research on the front end, buy a little bit, and then spend more time really learning about the company. One of the things that I think is helpful for Jeff, and I know is definitely helpful for me, and something I try to do for Jeff when we do engage on it, is he might bring a stock to me that I absolutely love it. Like, I love it. And Jeff would never know by the way that I'm responding to him because it's all about disproving a thesis, right? As an investor, because confirmation bias is real and we're wired that way and you can have 9 million reasons why something is going to go right and is going to be the next big thing. All it takes is one reason you're wrong. And it doesn't matter. Like All the rights don't matter if there's one wrong. I spend a lot of my time now trying to poke holes in when I have these great ideas because I've had tons of great ideas that have been terrible investments. I think everybody can relate to that. And it's the ones that like I've felt a little bit like, man, I've put this thing through the ringer and I'm just not completely sure, but seems pretty solid. And then I start building a position over time. And then it turns out that's Mercado Libre, right? Latin America. And can they really operate in, you know, 15 different countries and they don't have great regulatory regimes and people don't have credit cards. How are they going to do it? Right. And it's the ones that you see the problems with that you work through and like figure out what, how they're going to solve it and understand those risks like that's the biggest thing to me that's helped me become more successful over time. My strategy broadly, I think, is I kind of I've, I've built a bit of a barbell, and it's not a balanced barbell where you know half of it is in dividend stocks and half of it is in growth. The majority of it is in a little more stable cash flow businesses where they pay more of the cash flows out to investors in terms of like my invested dollars, my cost basis. And I've put less cost basis into the growth stocks because I bought more of them. I've made more bets. I own. 94 individual stocks right now. I was over 120 about a year and a half ago. And as the tide's gone out with interest rates, we've, we know who's swimming naked, right? So I've pared down a lot of companies that sure, if rates stayed low and capital was cheap, maybe they could have figured things out, but like it's just pretty clear that they're not going to be like the big winners. But anyway, so I've like Jeff talks about like the starter position investing. I tend to do that with the disruptors and the growth ideas. And then I get excited about eliminating and buy way too much cost basis up front and it doesn't work out great. But then on a serious note, I do like put more money to work in the stable cash flow businesses. And I feel like that gives me like the ballast and the companies that, you know, if a company is paying a five or 6% dividend and they've been growing that dividend every year, holding steady the years that they're not able to grow it and like the track record's really good and management's prudent with their cash flow. If the market goes sideways for the next five or six years and we only get six or 7% annualized returns, I'm already getting that in dividends from this company. That's going to be a really good stabilizing factor for my portfolio. If those 
Microsofts or Apples that are wonderful business that are trading for really high multiples, maybe they just don't perform because their multiples come down, even though the businesses perform fine, right? So that's kind of how I think about my portfolio. Yeah, I think it's also worth mentioning the difference between Jason and I's investing style is 90% of my invested wealth. So this is my uh, retirement stuff and my wife's 90% of our combined uh, invested wealth is in index funds. And that's a, a fact. That's just because I started investing when I got a job when I was 22 and I bought my first stock three years ago when I was 40 or four years ago when I was 40. So I can be a little... I don't want to say loose. I can take bigger swings. I can be a little bit more risk on with the stock portion of my portfolio. And probably I should actually probably be a little more risk on with it. If I think about the fact that it's 10% of my portfolio versus a very kind of safe and stable 90%. So I think that's a reason I'm, I'm sometimes a little quicker to jump into something or even put a little more money into something that's a little bit more risky just because I have that, my barbell is sort of that 90-10 of what's in index funds versus what's in individual stocks. I know Jason's fully invested in equities entirely. Yeah, 100%, 100% stocks and cash. That's that's it, yeah. So Jason, I'm going to, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to assume that when you had 94 positions, you weren't treating them all equally as far as like time spent researching. Is there a difference yeah. in that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important. So first things like, because I'm also a professional, right? I'm writing about companies. I'm doing research for the fool. All of that part, I have 40 hours a week to do that that most people don't, right? That's a cheat code that I have. But generally, so for example, Trex. I've been following the company for a decade and I glance at their quarterly report usually about a month or so after it came out, maybe a month after it came out. Um, I can't remember the last time I read their 10Q, to be honest with you. I'll probably read the annual report within three or four months of when it comes out. Maybe those kind of stocks, if they come down a lot or they go up a lot, then I might like, I don't want to let the stock price tail wag the Jason investor dog too much, but like it is a signal. Like, and you need to kind of figure out what's going on and see if there's like something going on with the business that's either concerning or more compelling. But no, a hundred percent. There's, I would say probably, a third of the stocks that I own that are my biggest winners that I've held the longest, I give them very little attention because I know them very, very well. And knowing more isn't going to help you. In fact, there's somebody like Charlie Munger says, I guess he would argue that the more you know, it actually can cripple you because you become yeah. overconfident. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a major, the law of diminishing returns applies very, very much when it comes to knowing everything about a business because it does, it, it starts to to cripple you. Jeff and I actually did one of our little rough cuts recently. I'm a big fan of the Brookfield entity of businesses, Brookfield Corporations, parent company, Brookfield Asset Management, Brookfield Renewable, Brookfield. I could go on, right? There's all these. And there's been some short reports and like they have a ton of debt and they're a little bit opaque with like related party dealings and all that kind of stuff. So it can be a little tough to really know what's going on and it can be a little concerning at times. But that was the end of the day that like the conclusion was, well, Bruce Flatt's been running the business since the late nineties and oh goodness, now I'm forgetting Oak Tree Capital Management's founder sold his business to Howard Marks. You know, Howard Marks, thank you. Kind of need to trust Howard. You know, some of these people you should you can trust them, right? They've earned some trust. And yeah, you just you trust them and you don't try too hard to look for things that maybe aren't there and just get in your own way. That's good advice. So what would you do you wish you knew 20 years ago or in Jeff's case, four years ago 
that you know now that you wish you kind of knew that you could avoid maybe some of the mistakes that you made along the way? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, it's what I said earlier, which is I think I wish I knew. It's hard to say I wish I knew like anything about investing. I mean, when you start, you don't know anything, right? I think everyone's in that boat. Whether you start when you're 19 or whether you start if you're 40, like at some point you're just kind of getting in without much knowledge. So I think the thing I wish I knew after the point of sort of understanding the basics is just the valuation piece. Like I wish I knew I shouldn't pay 50 times sales for anything. <laughs> you know, like I wish I knew that. Like that to me is like, and I, I've been talking a lot about it recently, like with friends and on our podcast, like that's the piece I'm trying to, to learn more about next. Like I want to be able to make more informed and smart decisions about valuation of companies. So I know a lot more now than I did even six months ago. And I, I expect that to continue. So for me, it's just that I just wish I knew a little bit more about, you know, what's too much money to pay for a company. Cause you know, you can get away with it sometimes, you know, if, if you have a long time horizon and you overpay for a small company and that company becomes huge, it's going to cover up a lot of sins. But I paid a lot of money for companies that were not in that boat too. So right. I'm not, you know, so I think that's the big one for me is just understanding valuation. Well, investing in that 2009 to really through the end of 2021, 14.8% compounded annual return market bull run wallpapers over a lot of stupid decisions in your 20s, right? So, but looking, I would say the one lesson that I wish I had have known, this isn't an investing specific lesson, even a personal finance investing specific lesson. It's a life specific lesson that applies to all of those things. But if in my 20s, I had have known that you shouldn't spend money that you don't really have on things you don't want to impress people that you don't like, your life is a lot better over the long term. And that just means, you know, my life would be better today. I would have more wealth. I have plenty of wealth. I have a great quality of life, but life would be better all around. You just made me think of something else I do think it's worth mentioning. I have a similar feeling about, I had no idea when I was younger. Like I'm talking when I got my first job, you know, in high school, I had no idea what like compounding was. You know, I wish someone had showed me that all those charts that exist now where it's like, if you just save a hundred dollars, you know, a month from age, whatever, you'll have this much down, you know, cause I contributed so little to my retirement account when I was first working. I didn't have a lot of money, but I didn't, you know, but I had no idea. Like I would have put 20 or 30 bucks a month when I had like my stupid high school job into a Roth IRA or something to, if I understood all that. So if I go back to the beginning of my whole investing life, my early twenties, that would be the thing. I wish I knew just how important starting and starting early can be. Because I'm doing a math teacher and not a music teacher, Jeff. (laughs) That is yeah. Not paying much attention in in my math classes is what led to that that problem. But yeah, I mean that would be the big thing for me going back to like the beginning. It's just understanding how important it is to start early. Those are both great lessons. Why this stuff isn't taught in school, I have no idea. It boggles my mind that we let people, kids go out into the world not knowing how to write a check or to pay a bill or to balance a budget and understand that when you go to the grocery store and you fill up the grocery cart and you go to check out that there's a good chance there's more money in that cart than you have in your wallet. And you know that happened to me in college. The first time I went to the store, 
I didn't know how much everything was. And I, we filled up my roommate and I filled up the cart and then we went to check out. It was like $300. Well, we didn't have $300. So the poor cashier had to ring everything, undo it, everything. So yeah. Why do you think they don't teach this stuff in school? I mean, Jeff was a teacher. Come on. What is this? Oh, this is a whole other podcast. If you want me going on this, here's my 30 second answer. I do think it has a place in school. It's hard to find the time to do it. There's a lot of things that school can cover. And I do think this is one of those things I do think is a little bit on the parent responsibility side of things too. That's one of the reasons that Jason and I are so passionate about doing the podcast and having it be based on conversations and openly talking about struggles and things like that. We just did a two-part series, which is now going to be over a month ago from when this comes out, I think, with Robert Brokamp from The Motley Fool about two, two episodes about investing with your kids. So trying to fix... I don't want to say mistakes. I don't want to throw my parents under the bus here, but I'm trying to make sure my kids understand a little bit more. All of us dealt with with our parents, right? Yeah, a little bit more than I did. So yeah, I I think it has. It could have a place in school. In fact, it does in a lot of states. I mean, I know here in New Jersey, we actually do have a high school two and a half credit financial literacy requirement. So there is some of that that does get taught, and that's becoming more prominent in more states. I don't think it gets as much time as it should. You know, in my opinion, I'd rather see that taught than maybe like I don't know. Calculus, like who needs calculus? Um, I hope I don't piss off all the math majors who are listening, but <laughs> no, probably not too much. <laughs> there might be two or three that listen to us, so that's okay. We're kind of wrapping up. Where can people, you guys are great and you have a lot going on, so I guess where can people find more about what you're doing and, and the different things that you have going on? Jeff, I waited so, for you to, be able to do that. All right, I'll go first. My personal Twitter handle is Market Musician. Really easy to remember. Uh, I tried to find the two things I was excited about when I joined Twitter professionally for my finance stuff. So Market Musician on Twitter is how you find me. You can find our show account at The Smattering Show. That's also on Twitter. So those are the two places to find our podcast and then me and then Jason, you can give your handle too. Yeah, so my Twitter handle is at the smattering, and the show account is actually at smattering show. No, oh, no see, I didn't even know what our show account was. Yeah, Good no, thing the, here. And smattering we have, show. <laughs> yeah, we have a YouTube channel too. Just go on YouTube and look for the smattering podcast and videos, and you can find us pretty easy. That's about it. So you'll find my, my byline, Jeff's byline too, over at the Motley Fool. We do some, some of our work does show up on fool.com too. So awesome. You know, guys, this was truly a pleasure. We really, really enjoyed talking to both of you guys. You guys are very smart and you're also funny and that makes it entertaining. So we do appreciate you taking time out of your day to come talk to us. And I know our listeners will get a lot of value out of this. So thank you guys for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, this was great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you're kind enough to ask us back sometime and subject your listeners to it again, remind me to tell you the story about the time that I cashed out a 401k to go golfing with a guy that I didn't really like. (laughs) Okay, that'll be note to self. (laughs) Yeah, count on it. It's going to happen. We're big fans, guys. I don't think Jeff mentioned, I want to mention it to Jeff. This was one of the first podcasts you ever listened to, wasn't it, when you started investing? Yes. You know, if you guys will indulge me for one more minute, Mm -hmm. when I first got like super obsessed with, with investing during the pandemic, like, you know, those months where we were all stuck at home and I was Googling constantly investing podcasts. Yours is one of the first ones I found and it, it became in my regular rotation of things to listen to as I was trying to learn everything I possibly could. So it's a really fun kind of full circle thing for me a couple of years later to, to be able to come on the show. So thank you for the invite. And, and I want, wanted you guys to know that about how important your show was for the beginning of my journey. So thanks. Welcome. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That gives me all the warm, warm fuzzies and it also terrifies me a little bit too. (laughs) Yeah. Makes my day. Thank you, Jason and Jeff. Absolutely. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Dave. All right. Thanks guys. We hope you enjoyed this content. 
Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.